find ourselves this morning in Hebrews chapter 12. Turn there with me. As we move forward through this book, I think what we're, we're pretty sure on is we'll finish the book around Easter. After that, we're going to go to the first couple of chapters in Revelation, looking at the seven letters to the churches. Should be fun. Do that together. And then over the summertime, we're going to do a series on the Ten Commandments from a gospel lens, a Christocentric lens, looking at the Ten Commandments through the gospel. And that'll bring us to the fall. In the fall, we will look at the book of Philippians together, study that together. And hopefully, uh, after Christmas and into the new year, we'll do what um, we have never done as a church yet, I don't believe. I've been, I helped plant the church, but I was gone for a little while. But, uh, and that is go through a book of a major prophet. Uh, I don't think we've ever done that. Maybe Isaiah, probably, maybe Jeremiah. And that'll put us to, uh, that'll start January 2021 and put us out for a little while. So that's kind of where we're headed. Um, so be praying as we uh, charter that course and pray that God will um, bless our study together. Chapter 12, verse 12. Hebrews 12 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Now remember, this text was decided months ago. (laughs) Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no charge to no chance to repent though he sought it with tears for you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice which whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Verse 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, verse 24, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I got allergies, as you could tell. Great time to have allergies, right? Crazy, crazy, crazy days. So we're looking through this chapter And the author's been talking about endurance, running the race. And the word endure and endurance is used four times in 20 verses. And the author of this this letter who's written to this congregation is well aware that they are struggling with persevering. They're they're under persecution and they are being tempted to turn their allegiance and their commitment to Christ to old things, to old ways. 
Hopefully by now you know the letter was written as an exhortation to remain faithful to Christ, that he is better, he is superior than anything this world can offer you. Better than the Old Testament covenant ways, better than the ceremonies. Christ not only forgives us of our sins, he reconciles us to a holy God and he alone allows us and gives us access into the very presence of God where we can have fellowship with him. Christ alone is our adoption as children of God. In chapter 12, at the beginning of the verse of the chapter, the the author encourages us to run the race, to follow the examples who went before us. Not so much they're looking on us, but we look to them. And then he says, but look to Jesus, because Jesus ran the race. He looked to his Father with, with joy and endured hostility, who endured not only excruciating physical pain on the cross, but as he took our just wrath upon himself, he endured the emotional and eternal reality of separation from the Father as he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then the author mentions in chapter 12, verse 4, that they struggled, yes, but they haven't shed their blood yet. They haven't endured what Christ has endured. And then last week, Chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, we're reminded that God's children get disciplined. In love, for our good, our joy, so that we can share in the holiness of God. So that we can reap a harvest of righteousness, a right living, understanding the will and the ways of God. Sometimes God disciplines us, we said last week, when we sin. And we're heading down a bad path. And God chastises his children. Sometimes he disciplines us from keeping us, by keeping us from sin. And sometimes he disciplines us. That's nothing, nothing to do with sin. He's teaching us. We're, we're being educated on how we ought to live our life. All of God's discipline for his children is done in love. And very importantly, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. And let's be honest. We grow in holiness. We learn the will and the way of God like a lemon when we're squeezed. Right? Like a pressure cooker. Put on the pressure. I heard a long time ago someone said, Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what they're made of until they're in hot water. Right? And verse 11, chapter 12, if we're honest, it hurts. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's chapter 12, verse 11. And then we pick up in chapter 12, verse 12. It says, therefore. Right? So our text this morning refers to the discipline that God does in love in verse 11. And the author wants, to, uh, wants us to, to, to know that the Lord disciplines his church for his glory, our own good. And he's encouraging the people now in verse 12 and following. He's encouraging them how to respond. How, how do we respond to God's discipline? Therefore, verse 12, because of God's discipline in love, to share in his holiness, to, to yield the fruit of righteousness, how are we to respond then to the discipline of God? We'll do it under three headings. The charge, keep running. How are we to respond to the discipline? Keep running. Run the race. Live holy lives. It's a challenge. How are we to keep running? Because chapter 12 is all about the endurance. Finally, the contrast. He says, while you're running, 
living holy lives, keep your eyes on the right mountain. We'll talk about that today and next week. Okay? So that's where we're going. Number one, the charge, keep running. Therefore, again, links backwards and forward to the response. How are we to respond to the Lord's loving, caring discipline? Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. In the suffering, in the discipline, in the hardship in life, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your knees. In other words, what the author is saying is there are different ways that God's children can respond to discipline. You can go through hardship and discipline and and difficulties and trials and become bitter and angry. You could see it as a nuisance, annoying you to the point of just want to get done with it. I mentioned last week, when God rescues us from darkness, from, from the bondage of sin to light and to freedom and obedience to him, he's doing it, and as he, when he does that, he is now in the process of conforming us to the image of his son. That's what you're running toward. And if we as Christians think, you know what, I want to get rid of this. I, I, I don't want nothing to do with this. Or maybe you're not interested in it. He said, maybe you're not even a a, a legitimate child, verse 8. Or are we going to receive the discipline of of the Lord kicking and screaming along the way? Or are we going to do what our scripture says, that our heavenly Father is disciplining us so that we ought to respond by lifting up our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees? In other words, how will you respond to the Lord's discipline? The imperative lift is where we get the word orthopedic to make straight, dislocated parts of the body. And the picture here is a coach pushing, pushing us to, your, uh, to, to the limits, right? And God's encouraging us to go, to go beyond what we think we can do. He's saying, straighten up. Get those hands up. Strengthen those knees. If anybody's been involved with sports or maybe you have children that are involved with sports, you know what that's like. Right, the, the coach is pushing you. The team is pushing you. Press on. And you're like, I can't do this. I can't run anymore. Yes, you can do it. Yes, you can do this. And they're trying to convince you <laughs> to stop thinking the way you're thinking and to respond and run the race. You know why? If you've been involved with sports, because at the end of the day, when the race is over, you're so thankful they pushed you, don't you? I finished the race. I guess I could do it. I, I did make it. Verse 13, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. That's an echoing of a verse in Proverbs telling us to, to level the playing field. Don't swerve to your left. Don't swerve to your right but remain straight. What, what did Jesus teach us? The wide lane off the path leads to destruction. The narrow path turning from sin, trusting in Christ leads to life. And the Christian athlete is saying, stay in your lane. Stay in the lane. And what's interesting in this verse, and, and you don't see it, the NIV I think picks it up a little bit better. When it says make straight paths for your feet, verse 13, second part, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed, it's an urge, listen, for all of us He's talking about those around us. It's, it's, a, it's a community issue. That's the point. It, 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 is, it is a call to, to not only smooth your path, but to make it that way so that the weak 
the spiritually lame are prevented from falling and tripping along the race as well. It's races run by a community. It is brothers and sisters running together. That's what it means when it says, so that what is lame. So those that are, that are having a hard time, you could run together. Hebrews is all about us together. Chapter three, verse 13. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Encourage one another. Verse, chapter four, verse one. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you collectively be found to have fallen short of it. Verse 11, chapter four. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following the example of disobedience. Chapter six, verse 11. We want each of you, all of you, to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. Chapter 10, verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, right? It's a team effort. One of our daughters ran track and ran cross country. Um, two sporting events have to do with running. I know track's got not just running. Well, I guess you, you do got to run the pole vault. But anyway, you know what I mean? And, and what was so interesting to me is that track, even long distance track, is so different than cross country. It's like two completely different sports. Some of you have been on teams like that, right? In cross country, you finish the race when the five members of the team cross the finish line. There's so much more of a, of a team sport than track. You would run together. And even as I thought about this, I called my daughter. I'm like, let me see if I get this right. Because I remember the team would get together. If you're across country, you know. The team would get together and walk the track. Before the event, you see the teams walking the track. Just, just checking the track out, the, 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 the problems, maybe the, the twists, the turns, the places where you could fall. And they would run together and point those things out to one another. That's what he's saying here. You don't want to leave dangerous spots where you could twist an ankle or trip over a rock and you do it together. You you lay aside the weight and sin that trips you up, chapter 12, verse 1. As we run, we must, all of us must fight the urge of American evangelism and what hinders the church. Stay strong and hold up one another. Hold up one another with with, with the the dangling hands, the wobbly knees. Pray for one another, encourage one another, uh, love one another. All the while remaining humble. Because you too, me too, are prone to weakness. Right? So when you're strong, you lift up the weak. And when you're weak, the strong lifts you up. We're in this together. That's what he's saying. We have to run and endure and remain steadfast together. Now, I think at this point we must remind ourselves, we'll look at it a little more as we move forward, is God is not calling us to simply pull up our own bootstraps and and go through this together, but with our own strength. No, he's saying, you can lean on me. Strength comes from the Lord, by his grace. And the context is God in his love, in his loving discipline, is pushing us and he'll give us the grace to endure. And that can only happen when we look to him. And trust him. Work together. Finish the race. Although we feel like giving up, we have to press on. Isn't that the charge? And the charge is, the charge is really simple. 
when God disciplines his children, chastises us, whatever circumstance we find ourselves, we have to push through it, to press on, to receive it, not as it was meant to be. Not an angry God trying to get even, but a loving God who's giving us the grace. It's a sign of our adoption as children that we have to finish well. We have to receive it by being strong in him. And if we can respond to his discipline that way, recognize that truth, then we will, we will gladly receive. Now listen, gladly receive God's discipline, God's chastisement with thanksgiving, right? Because God loves me enough to correct me. God loves me enough, not only to correct me, but he loves me enough and allows me to repent, allows me to, to seek forgiveness, allows me to, for, for the grace to continually pour out a, a, into my life. What a difference it would be if we recognized that kind of, 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 of discipline that God loves us and we understand that he is sovereign, he has a purpose, he is good, and he's making me more like Christ, and now we have every reason to strengthen our tired hands and our weak knees. And we can run for the joy that is set before us, knowing the love of God, knowing what God is doing in our life. And we should not forget we are his children. That's the charge, keep running. Run together, run knowing that God loves you. Look at the challenge. He continues, he says, listen, this is what you have to do. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That word strive is a very strong word. It's actually used to, uh, to be chasing after something. Chase after peace. Romans chapter 12. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. God's people are called to not cause conflict, but to pursue peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. And what does that look like? What does that look like for us? Maybe we should be people that are quick to forgive, quick and willing to forgive. Maybe we need to be a people that are kind, thoughtful, understanding different perspectives. Maybe we need to be people who are willing to help others. Maybe we'd be people who are reminded regularly to pray for our enemies. Believers are not to be a cause of dissension. Our fellowship should be a, characterized as a fellowship of peace. For we serve the Prince of Peace and building one another. Now, I recognize, and I, I'm sure the recipients recognize, there are those who just will not live at peace with you, right? Everybody has them. They, they just won't. And there's nothing we can do about it, but I, I, I would think, I'm just thinking this out loud, okay? I just think that if someone will not live at peace with us, it should at least, should at least trouble our souls. That we're trying to pursue peace. There is something that is blocking it. It should at least stir up in us a desire, a genuine desire to try and live at peace with one another. Now this may shock you, but there are people that don't live at peace with me either. <laughs> I know it's hard to believe. But after I've done all I could do, I've got to let the situation go. But I need to be broken about it. 
I need to try and strive to live for peace. My desire must always be for peace, and I must recognize that it may not happen. But that's my heart's desire. One commentator wrote this, peace with all men is possible only within the limits of what is right. There are, in fact, times when standing for just causes brings intense antagonism and peace is inevitably shattered. But the meaning must be the very effort must, excuse me, but the meaning must be that every effort must be made to maintain peace, if at all possible, end quote. Now, when I'm studying this, I'm trying to get to the text and the meaning of the text. I do try to contextualize it and think of the congregation as well. We talked about it in class last week. Some people, some people, their identity is linked with whether people like them or not. So you not living at peace with someone destroys you. And you take these verses very seriously as you should, but maybe you take it a little bit too far. Honestly, you're a people pleaser and your identity is wrapped up in what people think and feel about you. I see it all the time. There has to be a balance. There has to be a balance between having my identity, my value, and my worth rooted in the gospel and at the same time try and live at peace with everyone but being okay when that doesn't happen. In fact, the only way you could pursue biblical peace is being rooted in the gospel. Otherwise, you are seeking peace at the expense of knowing where the, the healthy boundaries ought to be. Pursuing peace means compromise, but it does not mean stopping abuse. You should do that. Ligon Duncan smartly, wisely says this. Listen. Recognizing that the reason we long to be at peace with the world is not so that the world will like us, but so that the world will be blessed by the gospel as the power of God's love flows through us. That's the real trick to being at peace with the world. Your motive has to be right. The motive is not so that everyone will like you. The motive is that they will be blessed. That motive is that they will be blessed, end quote. Maybe you struggle with that. You're unable or you're not sure how to distinguish that line, live at peace with all people. What is my responsibility? What is theirs? There, there are people you could talk to. And if that's your struggle, we're open. Call the office. We'll hook you up with someone. We can meet. We can talk about it because it's important that we strive for peace. But we know the boundaries as well. So I just want to caution us as well. And look what it says too. Peace and holiness linked together. Because peace is with one another. Holiness is what? With the Lord. So it's your relationship with others, living peace with all people, but yet holiness, living right, has to do with your relationship with God. And the author exhorts his audience to pursue holiness and warns them that those who are not pursuing holiness are not going to see the Lord. Pursuing holiness, listen carefully, is a mark and a sign of genuine regeneration. Being born again, born anew, having the Spirit of God. It is not a mark of those who have not trusted Christ. It is not a mark of those who are running the race that are running and going to fall away. An apostasy, we talked about that. And what he's saying here is, if you are running the race, you are marked by pursuing the Lord and becoming more like him. He's not saying, unless you run the race and you run it perfectly, you will not see the Lord. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying if you're pursuing the Lord, you're pursuing holiness, you're fighting sin. 
You're living faithfully. You're growing in grace, growing in the likeness of Christ. Holiness is not necessarily, is not necessary, excuse me. Holiness is not necessary as a condition of our acceptance with God. Let me say it again. Holiness is not necessary as a condition of our acceptance with God. We are justified how? By faith alone. Through Christ alone. Apart from works, Ephesians 8, Ephesians 2. But it is necessary as a consequence, an outcome of our acceptance with God. James says your faith is dead if it's not producing works. The reformers used to say something. I, it stuck with me from the first time I heard it. We are justified by faith alone. But faith that justifies is never alone. It's a good way to remember that. Those who are pursuing or running the race are being marked off by their continuous running toward being transformed in the image of Christ. James Boyce usually gets it right. Real Christianity leads a believer, uh, leads a believer to Jesus Christ. And that means that the Holy Spirit comes to live within the Christian, giving the person a new nature, creating love for God and desire to obey him and providing the ability to do what God requires. In other words, the gospel leads to an internal transformation, end quote. That's what he's saying. Pursue peace where all possible. Pursue holiness, growing in the likeness of Christ. And look out for one another, verse 15. See to it that no one, that's our group, fails to obtain the grace of God. Notice it's not about you reminding yourself. It's about all of us not failing to understand and obtain God's grace. So as we run the race together, keeping our eyes on Jesus, we pursue holiness as a community and we don't forget his grace. Mark this yourself. You and I will never ever be at a place in a position that we don't need God's grace, ever. Just settle that right now. And the grace of God is not simply his attitude of love and his, uh, uh, and his unfailing love for us, but it is the power of God too. Paul said that God's grace is sufficient for him. For God's power is made perfect in weakness. By the grace of God, the power of God comes, he says, therefore I boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See to it that no one fails. Literally falls short. Falling behind. Not keeping pace with the grace of God. Stir one another up in the progress of growth by the grace of God. We cannot live our heart through our hardships Alone, we cannot live without the grace of God. Don't take matters into your own hands. Remind yourself of the gospel regularly. Daily remind ourselves and confess our dependency upon God's love and God's grace, no matter how good or how bad things are going in your life. When we sin, greater grace is available. Paul said, where sin increases, grace increased all the more. John Blanchard, great quote. For daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, there is sudden grace. For overwhelming need, there is overwhelming grace, end quote. Not only do we pursue grace, look what it says, that no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, and by it become many. Mark that, many become defiled. The author is alluding to Deuteronomy 29, 
that says this, make sure there's no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord. That is the apostasy, turning her back on God. Make sure that no one's heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Apostasy, worshiping false gods. Make sure, Deuteronomy says, there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. See what he's saying? The recipients of this letter and hear us today are not to turn our back on Christ, on our confession of Christ. And when that happens, when there is someone among us that does that, who turns their back and running after other idols, what that can do is that can destroy and wreak havoc within the body of Christ. Defile many. The word defile means uh, contamination, ceremonial impurity. Someone has a corrupt mind. We're saying that when that takes place in the body, be careful. Because it can spread. It causes trouble. It defiles. It excludes people from the presence of God, from the truth of the gospel, and it must be seen, understood, and rooted out. It's not just bitter to the taste. It is poison that brings spiritual death. It causes trouble and defiles people. Uh, Philip Hughes catches it, uh, captures the meaning really well. It says, one person in whom discouragement becomes uh, because of the hardships of the contest has hardened into a bitter and rebellious spirit and caused him to abandon the race could by his apostasy cause incalculable damage, end quote. What does that look like? What, is, what does it mean to strive for peace, live for holiness, Obtain grace, but don't let the root of bitterness spring up, causing trouble, defiling many. He gives us an example. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Two appetites, he talks about, that can get out of control. We can miss the grace of God and fall into idolatry. Desires of sexual pleasure and physical appetites. The pursuit of bodily cravings and the chasing of sexual pleasure. We live in a time where it's, it's, it's not spoken of much at all, really. Everything seems to be okay. Everything seems to be okay when it comes to sexual sin. 1 Corinthians 6.18, every other sin is a, a, a person can commit is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. God expects his people to maintain the standard of sexual purity found in his word. It's not that he's a killjoy. Because he knows and he loves us and he knows the destruction, both physically and spiritually, it could happen, that could happen to us. In verse 16, though, just put your eyes on there for a minute. Let, let me just explain something to you here. That no one is sexually immoral Sexual immorality, that's actually the word porneia, where we get our word pornography. Anything outside of marriage, between one man and one woman, let me make that clear. Or unholy like Esau. Some commentators say, well, it was Esau was both sexually immoral and unholy. And some commentators say, nope, he's talking about sexual immorality, which is a sin, which should not be mocked by the people of God. And unholy has to do with Esau, who sold his birthright. So some people say one has to do with him, one adjective has to do with him, some say they both have to do with him. We know that Esau married women that were outside the covenant of God. Some people say, well, that made him sexually immoral. I don't really know, 
But I think the connection is clear. The connection between these two, sexually immorality and, and the giving up of the birthright, birthright uh, for food, showing is this irreverent attitude toward God, toward the word of the Lord. Esau traded away his birthright for the physical comfort of hunger, a single meal. And he just disregarded the word of the Lord. He disregarded the ways of God. And, and in fact, Moses calls him, uh, Moses says in Genesis 25, Esau's actions showed that he despised his birthright. So there's this irreverent, unfaithful, unwor- you know, unholy action of Esau. So whether it's sexual immorality or whether it's a, 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 an irreverent attitude, God is, what, what, what our author is saying is don't follow after that. In fact, he gives us a warning in verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau is a great example, we see it in other places in Scripture, of someone who regrets what they did, but they don't truly repent of what they did. And there's a, there's a distinction between regret and repentance. True repentance, a turning from sin and a turning to God, God embraces but regret is a different story. Regret is more concerned with what other people think. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Obviously, Esau didn't respond with genuine repentance. He regretted it. It even says he broke out and cried over it. Tears alone do not signal repentance. It says right here in our text. There are people who are heartbroken over their sin, but don't turn from their sin and trust God. They don't stop what they're doing. This is a warning the author is saying, don't be like Esau. You have two options. You could pursue peace. You could pursue holiness. You could obtain the grace of God. You could lay hold of the grace of God, lean on the grace of God. You could have no root of bitterness cause defile, causing trouble and defiling many. Or you could follow the Esau way irreverent, unholy, don't really care what God has to say, which way are you going to choose? Actually brings us to our next text. The contrast. Not only are there two ways to run, there are two mountains in which we're running. We're going to talk more about this next week. We're going to have a lot of time to do it. But let me give you this. I, I took it from Tyndale, House Publishers. There's a contrast between two mountains. You have Mount Sinai, the, the, the person of interest is Moses. And the principle of what the author is trying to get through in these texts, in these verses, is the law of God. The second one is the Mount Zion. Different mountain. The person of what interest for us is Christ. And the principle is, it's the grace of God. And the author is saying, which mountain are you running to? In your pursuit, where are you headed? Verse 18, Zion, uh, Sinai, excuse me, I'm saying Sinai, I'm sorry. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Doesn't say uh, uh, Sinai, but that's exactly what he's talking about. Verse 21, indeed, so terrifying on this mountain was the sight that Moses said, I trembled with fear. 
the author is going back to when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. And God told him, listen, y'all, stay away from the mountain when I descend. Don't come. If anyone even touches the mountain, you can look at this in Exodus 19. If you even touch the mountain, you're done. The mountain that Moses ascended and received the law on, on behalf of Israel, the Lord commanded Moses to warn the people, don't go, don't touch it. My presence is there. It's been consecrated. It's been set apart from sinful people. If you touch the mountain, you're done. If an uninvited person, a sinner, touched the mountain, they would die. And the Lord was present on this mountain in Exodus 19. Thick smoke, earthquakes, thunder, and lightning, and trembled. Uh, 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 the whole mountain trembled. What is the Lord showing them there? What is the Lord saying to us here he's saying listen there's a mountain in which you can't touch there's a mountain which you need to be separated from there's a mountain in which my presence will will destroy you even Moses was scared even the animals that's what it says verse 20 if even beasts touch the mountain it shall be stoned fear separation that's Mount Sinai don't go that way don't run after that mountain don't go back to your old ways don't go back to the things because the grace of God is here verse 22 but you have come to Zion the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable angels in festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn all the children of God who are enthroned in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, the spiritual beings of people, believers, now made perfect by the Savior, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Paul used the same analogy in Galatians 4. The old covenant was Mount Sinai, and her children, Paul says, comparing her to Abraham's illegitimate uh, son, Hagar, are slaves. But you, he says in Galatians, are fellow heirs of Christ. You are the Jerusalem above that is free. This freedom, this access to God in Christ is what we're talking about here in Hebrews. There was terror in Sinai. The law was given. The sinful people were unable to draw near. But now Mount Zion, the mountain of God's grace, because of the perfect law keeper, the one who gave up his life, the one who sacrificed himself, the God himself, the incarnate son, says, come to this mountain. Verse 22 and 23, we need to understand that there is a, an already and not yet there is the inauguration of the kingdom and coming of Christ, but there's not yet. We're, we're, we're to look for that new Jerusalem. God's promise of a new heavens and a new earth. That God will reign in his city. Even as Jerusalem was the capital of Israel, so the heavenly Jerusalem will be the capital of God's kingdom. Paul wrote, our, our citizenship is in heaven. Do you understand what he's saying? These two mountains... Where are we running toward? Do you know that your destination is important, but, excuse me, your journey is important, but the destination is more important? Why would you go through hardship and difficulties and trials 
when the result, the, the destiny, the place I'll find myself is horrible. You wouldn't do it. So run the race, not toward the law, but toward the grace of God. Verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator, the new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks better. There's our word, better. A better word than the blood of Abel. Moses was the mediator who stepped on Mount Sinai in fear and trembling. Jesus, the new mediator of a new covenant. In his blood, he takes away our fears. He, he draws us into the access, draws us into the very presence of God. Why would you go back? Why would you go back? Genesis 4, Cain, you know the story, murders Abel. God finds him pursues him and says, the voice of your brother, the voice of your brother Abel's blood is crying to me from the ground. The blood of an unjust killing always cries out for sin, always cries out against sin and for justice. Abel's blood spoke of sin and judgment against his brother, but when Jesus' blood was spilled, it spoke not against an unjust act, but spoke for it, our sin. Abel's blood cried out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out for justice too. But that justice was met on the cross of Calvary. Jesus' blood spoke a better word. A better word than Abel. He spoke forgiveness and cleansing and mercy and peace and grace. The blood of Jesus, the blood of the better covenant, the blood of the Son of God speaks to us like Cain who are guilty sinners. We are. It speaks of eternal redemption instead of condemnation. It speaks of grace and mercy. It speaks of putting away our sin finally and fully. It speaks of purging our evil conscience. It speaks of perfecting and sanctifying us. It speaks of reception and acceptance, not rejection. It speaks of blessing, not curse. It speaks of cleansing. Abel's blood cried out for justice, but Christ's blood cries out for mercy and pardon. So our author says, listen, run the race. Run the race. Endure. By the grace of God, endure. Run together. Recognize that my discipline in your life as a church, as a people, is for your good and for my glory. Run the race. Trusting, leaning into, relying upon the grace of God. And run the race by my grace. Because there is purpose in grace. For you and for me. Father. How timely is this? Father we are to run the race. Not in fear and trembling. That judgment and wrath will come upon us. But may we run the race. that is full of grace and mercy. And that, Father, we would run in pursuit of holiness. Wrath has been absorbed by Jesus Christ. And, Lord, may we run the race. As the word tells us, fear and trembling, but not because of wrath but because of your holiness and your grace. And that repentance leads us, excuse me, your kindness leads us to repentance. So Lord, help us to run. Run the race faithfully with one another, leaning upon your grace. 
And may we rely and trust in you in the midst of whatever's going on in our life. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.